Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, I'm listening to episode 272 of the podcast, and I have to take you to task about your dick shaming. I really like your podcast, but fuck you, dude. Saying that one should only send dick pics when it's appropriate is one thing. I've had plenty of women enjoy receiving dick pics from me after we've established a relationship. Kudos to you for helping educate. But to say dicks are ugly is shaming. You're supposed to be the shame exorcist, and here you are reinforcing men's insecurities about their penis. That's stupid and hypocritical. Get it together on this, Chris, and learn how to love your penis. And stop saying that penises are ugly. Uh, That's an email I got this week. Uh, And I wouldn't say it's the only one standing up for the dicks. Uh, So, yes, for those of you who feel that I was uh, spreading dick-related shame in the world, um, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel bad about your dick. On the other hand, it seems to me that there's a lot of evidence that um, men are overly affectionate toward their dicks. So... You're right. I, I, first of all, I never called myself the shame exorcist or a shame exorcist. That was all Duncan Trussell's doing. Um, but yeah, I'm against shame. Uh, I think regret can be a useful feeling, but shame never is. Uh, on the other hand, I think a bit of perspective is called for. And I think that when there is uh, inflation or some sort of a bubble, psychological bubble that's uh, expanding, uh, it needs to get pricked occasionally, if you'll pardon the puns. Um, And I think there's a lot of evidence that a lot of men think their dicks are these magical, incredible, uh, like magic wands that all you have to do is show it to, to a woman and she'll fall under its spell. Or, you know, uh, if you fuck her with it, oh my God, then she'll be yours forever. Or if someone else fucks her with theirs, then you've lost her forever. There's all this weird magical thinking around dicks. And so that's what I was trying to, uh, jokingly, I must say, um, deflate a little bit. I think we men my my impression is that men spend a hell of a lot more time thinking about dicks than women do maybe i'll get a bunch of angry emails from women saying i think about dicks all the time how dare you but i don't i don't think so uh i'll let you know if i do and i'll i'll read a few of them but um i think that uh that we think about our dicks way too much and uh the impulse to show your dick to someone who is not Clamoring for that is a bad impulse that we should definitely uh, shelve. 
I mean, look at look at this shit going on that's been going on forever in Hollywood. And some of it has come to the surface now with this Harvey Weinstein thing or Weinstein. I don't know how you pronounce his name. Anyway, uh, the guy's disgusting. He's fucking disgusting. He like traps women in the office and jerks off in front of them. Why, now, why are you doing that? Why would you ever do that? I, I don't I don't know. But there is an impulse to make other people look at you in ways that they don't want to look at you. And, uh, it's not cool. I mean, I have a, I have a friend, Connor Habib, really cool guy. I love, I love Connor. He's wonderful. He's smart. He's, uh, very thoughtful. He's been on the podcast two, maybe three times. Uh, I hope I'll have him on again. Um, I used to follow him on Twitter because he has very interesting things to say about science and politics and and all sorts of other stuff. But every once in a while, he just throws in a picture of his dick. And uh, yeah, I don't want to see his dick. Now, I don't know. Some people might say that makes me homophobic. I don't think so. I don't want to see his dick. I also don't want to see I don't have like, you know, pussy and tits in my Twitter feed. I if I'm like going along reading about, you know, Trump's an idiot and North Korea is about to blow up the world and the polar ice caps are melting and, you know, polar bears are dying of starvation and boom, here's a pussy like, I know context context. I wasn't ready for that. Uh, So I think that's what I'm trying to say is like showing, forcing people to look at you, uh, in ways, you know, that they don't necessarily want to is aggressive. At least that's how I feel about it. It comes across as aggressive. And I think that's how a lot of women feel about it. Like, you know, I don't want to see your fucking dick. Now, on the other hand, my overall point was, even if you do, it's not, you know, severe trauma. It's not something that should be putting you in, in the mental hospital. Um, but then I also got angry emails from people saying, who the fuck are you to say what's traumatic and what isn't? And maybe the girl who got the image of, uh, Anthony Weiner's penis against his underpants, uh, he was indeed traumatized. And so he should go to prison for that. That could be, uh, but my, Again, my point is that living in a society where a photo of a piece, a part of a body is um, criminalized seems really strange to me, especially given the fact that it's a part of a living body that is related with sexuality. Whereas if he had sent her, um, you know, a photo taken by a war journalist photojournalist of a dead baby that had washed up on the beach. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there could have been any criminal charges brought against him for that. And it seems to me that would have been far more traumatizing. I'm thinking of course, of a photo of a, of a refugee child who died on one of the boats in the Mediterranean and washed up on a beach, I think in Turkey or Greece. And there was a famous photo and it went all it went around the world. It was on front pages everywhere. Now to me that that's a much more traumatic photograph than some idiot's dick pressed against his underwear. But again, these are all just my opinions. I'm not king of the world, so I don't get to determine what's true and what isn't and 
Uh, I just express my silly little opinions and and move on with things. Anyway, I'm here in Barcelona. It's our last day here. It's a very strange time. We went down to, uh, Cassie and I went down, took a few days off, went to a place called Vejer de la Frontera. What a beautiful little town. Uh, a good friend of ours, uh, Deborah Berger, lives down there. You've, If you listen to the podcast, you heard an episode with her. She's the mother of Tal Ruspoli, another guest. If you're starting to get the idea that <clears throat> my entire life revolves around this podcast, that's probably not inaccurate. Deborah is one of the most extraordinary people I know. She's just incredibly talented and uh, kind and soulful, and I can't say enough about her. So uh, I really wanted to introduce her to Casilda and, uh, and get a chance to see her in her native lair because I'd only met with her in California in the past, and um, she lives down in Vejer. And man, she has beautiful property. She buys these ruins in this old, old town and uh, and restores them. And she's a, a designer. And uh, I mean, I don't know officially what her various titles are, but she's designed hotels and all sorts of properties around the world. And she's got just for my taste, just absolutely perfect uh, vision. It's she she makes places that are cozy and comfortable and interesting and uh just everything, the light, the angles, the just everything is just so fucking relaxing and rich and beautiful. Um, anyway, if and this is not an ad. OK, I, uh, I know this is an ad free podcast, but that doesn't mean I don't get to yammer on and on about stuff I love. And uh, and her place is just beautiful. And she rents them out. She does Airbnb. So if you're looking for someplace really interesting to go in Spain, that's off the tourist track, uh, Vejer de la Frontera, which is down between Cadiz and Tarifa in the southwest corner of Spain, uh, is a really special place. It's, uh, it's fascinating. It gives you a vision of Spain that's just um, full of history and, and richness. And uh, she rents her places out. She just bought one the day we arrived. She had just signed for another one. And I'm telling you, when I say ruins, I mean, it looks like it looks like bombs went off. The roofs are caved in. There's rubble everywhere and bugs and stray cats. And it's just a fucking disaster. And give her six months and it turns into a palace. It's amazing. Anyway, if you're interested in just checking out her stuff, go to DebraBurger.net. And her first name is spelled D-E-B-R-A, not Deborah, just Deborah Burger B E. R-G-E-R dot net. And I'm looking at her page right now. There are photos of uh, various places that she's redesigned. And and you'll see these amazing Spanish tiles and ironwork and fireplaces and just really lovely. And if you're very lucky, uh, you might go down there when she's in town and you'll get a chance to meet Deborah, who is worth the price of admission just, just to get to hang out with her. Anyway, uh, this episode, here I am, minute 11 and a half, and I haven't even said who the episode is. I got to learn how to do these podcasts. One of these days, I'm going to learn. Uh, 
This episode is with Jim Fadiman. He is known now, best known now, as sort of a guru, the guru of microdosing, uh, LSD, and I guess psilocybin, the whole idea that sub-perceptual uh, doses of psychedelics uh, have very beneficial effects for a lot of people, uh, ranging from relief of anxiety to thinking more clearly to more creativity uh, to um, relief from serious depression. Uh, lots of very interesting work going on now with psychedelics. Uh, you'll hear he corrects me in this uh, conversation. I, I refer to these substances as hallucinogens, and he very gently explains to me that that's the wrong term to use uh, because they do not, in fact, produce hallucinations. And I know this, obviously. I've been studying this stuff for 30 years or more. Um, but for some reason, I slipped into calling them hallucinogens. I think it just rolls off my tongue a little easier for some reason. And I still do it. But uh, from the time I spoke with him and forward, you'll hear me pausing when I get, get to that word, because I'd, I've been uh, corrected by one of the masters and I don't want to fuck it up anymore. So anyway, they're not hallucinogens. They are psychedelics. I think I probably shy away from psychedelics because it's associated with the music and the, the tie dye t-shirts and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And often when I'm talking about these things, I'm talking to people who aren't familiar with that world. I'm sort of the, you know, the, um, the go between from the world of, you know, hippie trippers to, scientists and doctors and, and people who are skeptical about these things. So psychedelics just bring, you know, uh, you know, Parliament Funkadelic and, and Jimi Hendrix and Woodstock and all that. And I feel like it scares people. So that's probably why. And entheogens, then you have to explain what that means. And, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it just gets into a, a mess. So I sort of settled on hallucinogens over the years. But um, I guess at this point, psychedelics is the way to go. Uh, what else? The book. Uh, I won't hammer on about this all the time. But since we're still in early days, if you haven't uh, heard about it or you haven't ordered Tangentially Reading, Please do. Please check it out because we need to uh, get a bunch of pre-orders for the book in order to get the production rolling. Um, that's how we're financing it. So it's not really a, like a Kickstarter because we're going to do it. Um, but the more pre-orders we get, the more we can get into production and that lowers the cost and that makes it better for everybody. So if, it's, uh, if you're interested in having... Uh, a book that is produced, put together, the whole fucking thing is a production of the Tangentially Speaking community, of which you are obviously a member. Welcome. Uh, please support the community and support the whole project by pre-ordering the book. It's 20 bucks. Um, you know, very cheap for a book these days, especially a book that's got original art. Um, the, the art was done by Adam McDade, who's a, a listener. He's probably hearing my voice right now. Hi, Adam. 
uh, fantastic uh, original sketches of each pen and ink drawings of each guest on on very interesting backgrounds like Casilda is uh, is on an old map of Mozambique and I think mine is on sketched onto images of bonobos and anyway uh, the guests are amazing Dan Savage Wim Hof Stanley Krippner you know them all uh, Josh Fox and Duncan and Joe Rogan and Andrew Weil and Tal Ruspoli and Mary Roach. And, uh, I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, anyway, you can check it out at, uh, tangentially reading. Uh, I think if you just Google tangentially reading, it'll come up. Uh, there are different pages that lead there. There's a link on my page. Of course, if you go to tangentially you'll see a link there on the right. Um, and, uh, it's put out by misfit press who are, uh, is an organization that was started by A.J. Leon. And I think uh, we're getting his chapter included in it as well, if I'm not mistaken. I think when it went into production, it was before, uh, or at least when it was in the works, it was before he and I had spoken. Um, but it was such a good conversation. If you haven't heard that conversation, make sure to go back and into the archives and listen to A.J. Leon episode. I don't remember which number it is right now, but just, you know, you can Google it. And, and uh, he's such a cool guy, really fascinating dude. And he, he's, you know, was working on Wall Street, making a shit ton of money. Stuff got weird. He walked out impulsively one day and no idea what he was going to do. And he and his, his, I think, girlfriend at the time, they got married within weeks and, um, and their lives have completely changed. And, uh, and uh, had and it's taken off in in all sorts of interesting directions. Really cool guy, uh, and a great example of you know, take a chance in the world. The universe will conspire um, to take care of you. It's uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, okay, I'm gonna stop talking because I have a cold. I probably sound like shit. And I got to finish packing and doing all this stuff. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for being part of this tangentially speaking community and proving that there's an audience for homegrown, handcrafted uh, podcasting (laughs) produced in the garage, in this case, produced in my old office, which I will be leaving tomorrow. And I don't know when or if I will ever return. Strange feeling, strange feeling, but hey, onward, right? Got to keep moving onward. So Jim Fadiman, I hope you enjoy this episode. I certainly enjoyed meeting him and I, I hope we're going to have a, a follow up at some point. He's in Santa Cruz, which isn't too far away. So I hope I'll, uh, I'll go up and, and hang with him again. He's a very thoughtful, smart, um, very worldly guy. I'm going to play you out with one of my favorite tunes. I may have played it on here before. I don't know. It's uh, Tribalistas. The song is Tribalistas and the band is Tribalistas. This is sort of their anthem. Uh, And it's, I think they only did one record together. It's three very well-known Brazilian musicians. Uh, Let's see, Carlinhos Brown, Marisa Monte, and... The other one whose name I always forget, uh, Antunes, uh, Arturio Antunes or something like that. Anyway, uh, the way their voices intersect and the, the, the rhythms and the, the, just the way they dance together vocally is something to behold. And uh, 
And I always think of this song when I'm thinking about the community of this podcast and how cool it is. You know, I'm, oh, I didn't even mention we're renting our place to a guy and his wife who heard me mention like two episodes ago that I was in Barcelona to clear out the apartment to rent it. I had a guy named Janko. I met him uh, six years ago or something at a party. Uh, must have been seven years ago because Sex at Dawn wasn't out yet. But the pre-publication, you know, when you publish a book, the editor, the publisher gives you some uh, galleys, they're called. So they're, it's like a paperback, but it's on cheap paper. And it's it's what they send out to reviewers and stuff so that they can get reviews in the works before the book is actually out. And I had a few. I met him at a party and he's a very smart guy and we were talking about it and he was, you know, like, man, I'd love to read that book. And I guess I said, well, it's not out yet, but I have a few copies of the pre-publication thing. If you want to come by my place, I'll give you one. And and he followed up. He came by. And um, so this would have been in like early 2010 because the book came out in June. So this would have been in the spring of 2010. And uh, and. So I guess he listened to the podcast and he heard me say, yeah, I'm here, we're packing up and we're going to rent our place and all that. And he sent me an email and he said, hey, is that the place I saw seven years ago when I came to pick up that book? And I said, yeah. He said, man, I think I'd like to rent that. Could, could we come by? And so he and his wife came by and we hung out with them and they're super cool people, really good vibe, you know, doing beautiful things with their lives and uh, have a really nice relationship with each other. And anyway, uh, so we never even put the apartment on the market. We basically just put him in touch with uh, our friend Octavi, who's our lawyer and our buddy here in Barcelona, who's handling everything for us. And they worked it out and uh, he's coming for lunch in about 10 minutes. He, um, Janko and Rita. Uh, are coming for lunch and so again the fucking podcast comes through thank you podcast and thank you people who listen to this and support it financially and in every other which way so there you go again the podcast is just uh, a lifesaver so it's really cool good people are going to be living in our place with good energy and that makes us so happy because it's uh, as you heard in the the last uh, toma I did last week. It's um, it's a place we really love, and we've um, we've had some amazing years here. So that's enough for me. Enjoy this conversation with Jim Fadiman and this beautiful song called Tribalistas. Já não querem ter razão Não querem ter certeza Não querem ter juízo nem religião Os tribalistas já não entram em questão Não entram em doutrina Em fofoca ou discussão Chegou o tribalismo No pilar da construção Tem Deus Se na taba Agora eu ando só com o pé Dois homens e uma mulher Arnaldo, Cap 
Os tribalistas saudosistas do futuro Abusando do lírio e dos óculos escuros São turistas assim como você e o seu vizinho Dentro da placenta do planeta azulzinho Tem Deus e fé na tava together what became the psychedelic explorers guide one of the things that was clear is nobody was going to publish it yeah therefore i could do it exactly the way i wanted why was that clear because you'd published other books in the past well i published other books but it didn't this was coming just as psychedelics were coming back into fashion mm. and so what year are we talking about this was i wrote this 2010 oh okay and it came out 2011 right right And it came out of another failed book, which is, um, there's a very famous writer in my family, Anne Fadiman, who has written a book about, um, her famous book is When the Spirit Catches You, You Fall Down. I've heard of that book. Which is about oh. a Hmong child, H-M-O-N-G, right. who has um, epilepsy, uh -huh. severe epilepsy. And she's living in the Central Valley, where a lot of the Hmong came after we destroyed their country. Right. And Laos. she gets the finest, most compassionate, beautiful American health. And she also gets the finest, most compassionate Hmong health. Yeah. And it's a horror. It's a total mess. It's a disaster. Right. Um, the Hmong basically feel one of the things you need to do with epilepsy is to get the spirit out of you. And one of the ways you do that is you kill a pig in your apartment. Right. So the spirit can go into the dying pig. Right. This doesn't work as well in the American medical system. <laughs> the neighbors have issues. But anyway, Anne said, you know, you really ought to write a memoir about your psychedelic days. So I yeah. spent a summer researching myself, mm. reading the books that I would have read there if I had been reading correctly, and 
looking at old diaries and making time charts and I find, and thought, you know, who did I sleep with, who did I not sleep with, who did I take drugs with, and all that. And I looked at it at the end of it and I thought, who cares? Mm. And I thought, this is going to be smaller than my Christmas card list. And then I had the epiphany, which is, what do I know that other people don't know about psychedelics? And information that I don't want lost, that I want people to have to rediscover. And it, as I went back over that, I realized I'd been part of almost every aspect of psychedelic research in the early days and was still involved in a whole new way that we'll get to. And so I thought, well, I'll just put all that together. Yeah. And so I put it together. And then this wonderful publisher, Inner Traditions, um, said, well, let me look at a couple of chapters. And they said, fine. And I thought, you don't know what's in any of the other chapters. And I thought, I'm not going to discuss it with them. <laughs> <laughs> Let them find out when it's too late. And yeah. it's turned out to be um, very solid backlist for them. Yeah. So it actually Fantastic. sells about the same number of copies every year. That's great. Which is very nice. So it's become sort of a, a Bible, I take it's it. A, for... Yeah, it's one of those books where... When a certain topic comes up about psychedelics, particularly how to take it in a high dose right. with a guide. Right. Because that's really how most people, most people who use high doses would do well to have a guide. It's yeah. kind of like your designated driver. Right. And this is a good go-to book for a couple of chapters for that. Oh. So but when, you're sort of famous for the microdose. Well, that's all point. the new stuff. That's the new but thing, in the, right. But in the 2010 book, there's the first hint of microdosing. Ah, okay. Which is a couple of cases, a couple of people who microdosed and who wrote up kind of what they were up to. And then I started learning. Hmm. So now microdosing is huge. Um, and rather than have two or three cases, as I have in this book, we just uh, my co-conspirator and I, Sophia Korb, we just closed off our study at 1,700 people. Right. I saw your, your online, your webpage, yeah. which I went to to bone up on microdosing myself. Somebody recommended it to me probably a year or two ago. I saw you were running a study at the time, or maybe there was a note already saying... No, no, this was... We, were, we were actually ran it for only about eight months. Oh, okay. And most... If you read the psychedelic research, which I do, um, it takes years to do a study. It takes huge amounts of money, and you get twelve subjects, right? Or eight subjects, or eighteen subjects, and then it's dismissed as not. Well, then people say those subjects were too small, and yeah. and that's been wonderful breakthrough research. Yeah. But we came at it totally differently because microdosing was totally unknown, and we ran what I call search, which is tell us what happened. Mm. And people would write and say, well, how do I use it? So we devised a protocol which is safe and interesting. And then people basically started writing us. And for a couple of years, I accumulated boxes of wonderful reports that I didn't know what to do with. And then when Sophia came on board, we upgraded enormously to modern science. Mm. So now we have these 1,700 people who filled in a checklist every day for a month. And mm. then wrote us a report. And were they doing the microdosing every three to four days? They were doing it every third, third or fourth day, depending right. on what they felt was correct. Right. And that you recommend because the 
brain body builds up a tolerance. Well, if you do really, it too two long. reasons. The first was big discovery. It the effect lasts two days. Mm. Now. Everyone who uses psychedelics at higher doses says, no, that's not true. Psilocybin lasts four to six hours, LSD lasts eight to 12 hours, Ibogaine lasts maybe 36 hours and is no fun. Um, Ayahuasca is an all-night event. What's this two days? Well, it turns out that everyone of us researchers, and I think of this past 40 years, have gotten it wrong, which is we say it lasts X hours, Oh, and by the way, there's an after effect of up to six weeks. Now, the by the way, we never really paid attention to. Mm. But if you're dealing with a microdose where you don't have all the, you have no psychedelic effects, no no flash, no angels, no jaguars, snakes don't eat you, none of that. The rocks don't glisten and, and the flowers don't smile at you, none of that. So then you're really looking at what are the effects. And what people indicate is the feeling better, functioning better, working mm-hmm. better, sleeping better, about two days. Yeah. That's the real effect. Right. And so we, what we found is if you then are trying to find out what's going on, you want people to be coming on and off that. So taking it every third day gives you a third day off where you go to baseline. Right where you can feel the difference between a day when you're dosing and a day when you're not. Right. Now, it turns out after about 30 days, that third day gets a little vague because, <laughs> because your level has shifted. Yeah, yeah. So you're feeling, for the people who feel better, which is most people, they kind of are just feeling better. Right. And so the third day, so a month seemed realistic. Right. And the other thing is when you're asking people to do anything, simply because you, you're asking them to be part of this research and you have no control over them and they're from all over the world, um, a month is a long time to ask for someone. Sure. So that's where... Consistency. That's, so the, yeah. the reality of science is it's rarely thought out well in advance. Yeah. And in this case, we, we, we found that worked and it turns out that it made sense, that it actually works well for people. Hmm. And now I know you're not a, a neurochemist, but maybe you can just tell me if my sense is correct that LSD and the other hallucinogens are close to the molecular shape of uh, neurotransmitters, right? Yeah. Often yeah. serotonin, well, sometimes. Well, it's actually the other, uh, historically, serotonin only became of interest because it was close to LSD. You're, I remember reading about that. They were trying to figure out how could such a small amount of a substance have such Had, profound effects, right. and, and that opened the door to the study of neurotransmitters. Right, so yeah. that really yeah. this whole incredibly worldwide excitement in pictures of brains, Right. Um, I'm not a great fond of, I don't think neuroscience is at all as developed as it says it is. Oh so that's yeah, why I, I agree, I agree. The illustrations are wonderful. Yeah. But yeah, it really came out of out of LSD, not the other way around. Right, right. And that's mid-50s? Uh, no, that's really the 60s. Oh, is it in the early yeah, because, 60s already? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then the whole serotonin, dopamine notion then got translated into why antidepressants work 
except that they don't work. <laughs> so it turns yeah. out yeah. that the whole theory... They work in making a lot of money. They work well, for the that. The whole theory of serotonin and dopamine and antidepressants turns out to be... Um, the science behind it turns out to be missing. The yeah. marketing behind it has been fantastic. Right, exactly. That's, that's unfortunately so often the way these things work. So one of the, th yeah. the reasons I got interested in the antidepressants is... Among the reports we were getting is people that said, I've been depressed, and I've been microdosing, and I'm not depressed. Thank you. Yeah. And so we started looking more closely, and we're now getting kind of sophisticated and saying to people, it looks like this is a genuine antidepressant, and that's amazing, and we don't know why. Does it have now i know when we talk about hallucinogens one of the things we talk about is structural changes in the personality no wait 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 yeah um i'm gonna ask you to upgrade your language <laughs> Happy and to i'm do trying it. to do it Happy really do gently it. and right. really politely Give it to me. but Give the it word to me. hallucinogens oh we makes don't like me that. gag oh really <laughs> yeah because that suggests it creates hallucinations right you like psychedelics better and well psychedelics mind manifesting mind is manifesting, kind of a, right. a, a vague term which says it has a lot of effects right but the one thing for people who take psychedelics is they say no, that's not hallucination. Yeah, I see the wall is melting and turning into an Arabic palace and 100,000 <laughs> white horses are coming through it. But uh, I'm perfectly aware yeah. that my mind is creating that. A hallucination is when you think the thing out there is, is real. really out there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so okay. it's a very different, it's, it's a whole different spectrum. Yeah, and, and theogens, I've heard that. And theogens is yeah. the kind of psychedelics used for spiritual experience right same substance same Dif substance different well semantics. psychedelics are peculiar in that when you raise the dose most drugs when you raise the dose you get more of the same you take mm -hmm. one aspirin it helps your headache a little you take two it feels better you take five your headache's gone you take you have to go up quite a ways before any of the side effects bother you but mm -hmm. it's all the same effect right it's kind of like turning the volume up. right when you take a psychedelic what you're getting is like a different frequency on the radio. It's the same radio, right. but it goes from rock to NPR right. to, to talk shows, and they're very different. Right. So that um, high dose, say 400 micrograms, will, in, with this good set and setting, is pretty much guaranteed to take you towards a mystical experience. Yeah. 200 micrograms, it's great for certain kinds of psychotherapy. 100 micrograms, creative problem-solving, hard science, physics, calculus, you know, proton examination. Or a beautiful day at the beach. Or concert, concert yeah. dose. And 10 micrograms, microdose. Again, totally different um, setup. Right. So it's just one of the things about psychedelics that makes them unusual. Yeah, one of many things. Um, so... Yes. Kick me if I say hallucinogens again. <laughs> I, I sort of switch around between the different words. I understand. Um, but my question was, when we talk about um, the use of psychedelics, sometimes, for example, with ibogaine or with uh, ayahuasca particularly, right. people will, um, well, and also with LSD, I think of Oscar Janiger's experiments in, yep. uh, in um, Los Angeles and, and the work you were doing as well in Menlo Park. Yep. Um, people will report lasting structural change. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so one or two or three experiences, they'll come back and say, okay, I'm different now. I'm looking at life different, I'm living differently. And what Janiger, who was working predominantly with artists, would have them do is paint oh, both during the experience, beautiful paintings. but right. also yeah. what he saw is many, and many artists have said so, is their art changed. Right. And psychedelics, why do people's um, lives change after psychedelics? Not because their brain chemistry has changed, but because they've had a learning experience. Mm. In a simple way, is why does why do why do people change after college? Right. Why do they go in? I was a college counselor at Stanford for a while, and why is it that people like forty or fifty percent of Stanford students enter as freshmen pre-med, and about ten percent leave as pre-med? Now, partly they find out that it was hard. But partly they find out there are a lot of other things that interest them. Mm. So someone says, well, I was in pre-med, now I'm in medieval French literature. <laughs> okay? There hasn't been a shift in brain chemistry. Good luck paying off that loan. There's been a shift in income expectations. Well, they hopefully, their parents are still with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But what I'm saying is there's been a shift because their eyes have been open to a larger They've world. They've had an experience, transformative yeah, experience. Just as... Yeah. Um, when you've been in a Midwestern town and then you get a fellowship to go to Paris. Right. You come back and your town is a lot smaller than it was. Is that what happened to you? No, you grew up in California. Yeah, but when I went to Paris... Yeah, things changed for you. <laughs> well, after college, I took a year in Europe yeah. and uh, it was very opening. Do you speak French? Uh, I didn't go to learn French uh -huh. and I learned enough French to manage fine, but yeah. but I, I was writing a very bad novel while I was there. <laughs> As one does in Paris, yeah. <laughs> and mooching off of people all over Europe. So were you sort of a Henry Miller? Uh... I think there's a, there's a term in French called a flaneur. Uh -huh. And a flaneur is someone who hangs out and observes other people's lives. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So I wonder how that, how would you translate that to English? Uh, um, uh, hobo, a roustabout, kind of a ne'er do well, ne'er do well, or or a or a seriously unemployed hippie. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, and there, my, but there is that tradition of Americans, young exactly. Americans, going to Paris, working Writing, on a book, exactly. smooching off friends, hanging out in cafes. No, it was. Wonderful. And I did it in Barcelona. That was my. <laughs> well, Barcelona is a wonderful choice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having. Yeah, and I got as far as Cadaqués. Oh, beautiful place. Right. Uh, Salvador Dali's right. summer house on the exactly. beach there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mooched off of wonderful people yeah. there. Yeah, I've mooched off some people in Cadaqués. Uh, yeah, it's a lovely so I was, town. So I was living in Paris, and I was living on less and less as my money got thinner and thinner, and I was fine. And then my draft board wrote me a letter. Right. And they said, we have a career opportunity for you. <laughs> and I Killing thought, I don't people. want that kind of career. I don't really, I, I also, near the end of my Paris trip, I had had psychedelics for the first time. Hmm. And it seemed inconceivable that I would be willing to go shoot at people that I didn't even know. Yeah. It seemed a kind of absurdity, as war is absurd. Yeah. So suddenly, um, graduate school looked terrific. Now, I, I have to admit that I listened to your podcast with uh, <laughs> Kyle Tierman on the drive right. up here. Right. So if it seems like I'm some sort of 
expert admit, in your life. I, admit, I didn't think, well, where did he get that? <laughs> yeah, and, and I recommend people listen to that because that was a really good conversation. You guys covered some great ground there. So when I'm pulling up these facts, I don't sure. want anyone to think that I've, you know, that you're been stalking expert. you or something. Yeah. Um, but that uh, first experience that you described was rich, with Richard Alpert. With Richard Alpert, yeah, who had been my undergraduate um, mentor and favorite teacher right and I had worked uh, a summer in, at Stanford with him and he was the senior researcher I you was were at Harvard with him. I was at Harvard and this was what year six was in my junior year at Harvard which had been um, 60 59 59 so what Leary was there as well I he was and but I wasn't no one none of us were into psychedelics then right Oh, so this was before. This was this, before. So when when did Leary and Albert get into 60, trouble? Sixty one. Oh, that was sixty sixty one. So yeah, Leary because was I was in now Mexico. in Paris, sixty sixty one. Richard comes over with Tim. They're still at Harvard, right? And they're going to give a presentation in Copenhagen with Aldous Huxley. The first time they talked about the Harvard work, right? To a bunch of international psychologists, right? So on the way to Copenhagen. Dick stops off in Paris to see his favorite student. Right. And he says, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me. And I think, well, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> and I want to share it with you. And I think, well, that's cool. What is that? Oh, it's a car pulling out. I should also say, we're sitting in this beautiful little bungalow overlooking the ocean. So if people are hearing waves, <laughs> that's, that's what that's it is. That's for real. That's for real, yeah. Uh, so your first... It's funny, Stanley uh, Krippner, our mm -hmm. mutual friend, tells a story about, I think it was his first experience with hallucinogens, was with Timothy Leary. With, with what? With Tim Leary. No, what was what was the substance? Oh, with the psychedelics. Yeah, oh good. Psychedelics, oh my God. <laughs> good, you, you, you beat it out of me. I'll, I'll uh, be forever changed. Um, <laughs> that's good. I taught English for years, so I, I'm... Okay, so I, I, I've done that to a lot of people, so I'm, yeah, I'm happy I mean, to have it done. I'm delighted you're not embarrassed by it, but I'm oh, actually no, trying no. to 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 help you not offend people. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I I've used these substances a lot myself, and uh, you know, I heard entheogens, and I thought, okay, I can. But then eh, I don't know. And no, I prefer psychedelic because it's it, it doesn't define it. Yeah, it it's just, just says it's one of those. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, the difference between ibogaine and ayahuasca, and LSD are quite large. Right. But they are closer to each other than most other substances. Yeah, yeah. And to me, the, the what what joins them all together and makes them so much different from these other things we call drugs is that they're their opening and, and inviting of right. perception and, and yeah, knowledge. They're, and, they're enhancers. Right. They're not stimulants. Right. And they're not depressants like alcohol. Right. And they're not, I guess, um, I'm not sure what you call marijuana these days. Well, I've... Mellowers. Yeah, I've seen marijuana described as psychedelic, but I don't think it is. It can be a psychedelic, maybe, but you've got to stretch a little. Yeah, maybe... <laughs> ingested at high doses which is not a good idea generally <laughs> you don't you won't die but you'll wish you were yeah yeah um i will not go into why i know what you mean 
<laughs> Does it involve running down the streets of Amsterdam naked? No, I never quite no. got that far. Yeah, I know some people who have yeah. like had one too many brownies and things got out of hand. Um, did you know Andrew Weil by any chance at Harvard? Or Richard I Evans Schulte? Well, I knew Andrew, Andrew um, and we were, I think, casually uh, connected because he was... He was peripheral to Richard Alpert's small group. Right. And that's, again, later. So Andrew's a, a couple of years behind me. Right. So I knew him as a newspaper man, as a, as a student journalist. Yeah, yeah. And and I know him well enough, so if I phone him and say who I am, he says, oh, it's nice to hear you, but we're not, um, we're really not that close. Right. Um, and he, of course, bears this, this strange burden of having been the tool that the university used right. to get rid of Albert. Because he wrote about the, the experiments in the Harvard Well, Crimson. he convinced someone to confess to the administration that he as an undergraduate had taken a psychedelic with Richard. And Richard's agreement with the school, which had no idea what to do with all this, yeah. and was kind of hanging on to academic freedom as long as it could, said, well, Okay, you can do your research, but no undergraduates. Right. So, in, a, in almost a technicality, they said, "Oh, thank God, we have some reason to get rid of Richard." Yeah. And the rest is literally history. <laughs> right. So, when you talk about that that meeting in Copenhagen with Aldous Huxley, right, and Richard Alpert, who later became Ramdas, people will know him as Ramdas, and um, and Timothy Leary, that there's sort of a in that triumvirate there you have three very different approaches to um the sort of to to channeling the impact of hallucinogens on society right so it, and correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is timothy leary said everybody should do this tune in turn in on the drop water out. supply yeah Ram Dass, well, the man who later became Ram Dass saw it more as a sort of a spiritual, uh, a route into spiritual awakening. And, and um, Aldous Huxley had more of an elitist uh, approach, think, saying intellectuals, politicians, this should be used by people in positions of power and sort of change the world from the top down. That's pretty good. You know, the thing that, that's interesting about Aldous, and he didn't know it at the time, is he's describing exactly how it was used in Greece for 1,500 years, right. which was the Eleusinian mysteries, right. which were for the elite, and almost a necessity for the elite to have gone through the experience once at Eleusis with a psychedelic as the finale of a week's worth of um, induction. Right. And um, that culture, as we know, Greece did very well. Do we know that, that there was hallucinogens involved there? Because I know there was a vow of secrecy, so it's not written about very much. Well, we're, we know what it was called. We know what its effect was. Soma? Uh, Kriyan. Uh, Soma is what, the Hindu? Soma is the Indian. Yeah. Soma is the, okay. the Hindu um, side of it. And we also know the description of what its effects were. And we also know a bit of the set and setting of the kind of psychodrama mm. that people saw while they had taken this substance. Right. So do you think, okay, so the, the elite of Greece, and this gets into Aldous Huxley's thinking and, and 
possibly my thinking as well. I'm not sure if, where I um, am on that spectrum. But do you think that because of the nature of psychedelics, the, the mind manifesting, the opening, right. the, the, the multiplicity of perspective, which I th mm -hmm. the two most important things in my intellectual life, I think, have been psychedelics and travel mm -hmm. for the same reason. Same reason, they, yeah. You know, I see a book, a Joseph Campbell book behind you there. <laughs> sure. His phrase or his term was detribalization. Right. Get out of your wherever you're from and whoever you are and see that there are multiple perspectives. Um, but there's something special about these substances that lend themselves to spiritual advancement. Well, the, the word spiritual um, is again one of those tricky words, and you can keep it. It's the right Thank word. You. <laughs> okay, don't worry. <laughs> I can't handle two. <laughs> My vocabulary is only a hundred words here. But what we're looking at is when you take a psychedelic, what you discover is that your personality, which you think is the the whole of you, or the right. core of you, right. is a subset of you, right. and that you are actually a larger being of which your personality is a part. Which is the same point that, that meditation is supposed Correct. to be That meditation, that chanting, observe that yourself. fasting. Yeah. The fact that there's a dozen ways to go towards that same space suggests that there's something important there right. and that cultures use whatever they can. Some cultures, most cultures, right. um, in my understanding, most cultures that have had access to these this class of substances have seen them as the greatest gift of yep. the gods. Right. And yet in America, you go to prison for longer for having 100 hits of LSD in your backpack right. than if you second degree murder. Well, let us say that the, the Inquisition never discriminates very well the idea of what the crime is. It does say, however, that not accepting that the establishment is terrific is a crime. And one of my friends, Kathleen Spieth, said it very nicely, enlightenment is always a crime, meaning it is always contrary to the stability of the culture. And so if you think of the 60s, one of the things that made the, the establishment so frightened of psychedelics is people who took psychedelics, and I'm one of them, didn't think that Vietnam was terrific. Didn't right. think that war was to the advantage of either party. Right. They also felt that e that nature and ecology was fundamentally important, and that oil and gas isn't a better solution, right. you know, than than wind and solar. They also felt that in, after psychedelics, the idea that women should be treated as inferior and disadvantaged seemed inappropriate. So if you just take the three and, and of... And also of, civil rights with blacks. Well, if we take yeah. the idea that, that simply oppressing people because they're not you, they don't look like your grandmother, um, these are all, from the psychedelic point of view, self-evident insanities. Right. And the culture said, we actually run on those, and you're... You're not attacking us like a revolution. You're undercutting us in a much more profound way. Mm. And we would like to stop you. And it was a total failure. The stopping. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you actually hear the numbers, and this is the numbers from the federal government, so you have to know they're the low end. Since 
LSD, and I'm just talking about LSD, not other substances, was made illegal. 26 million Americans have taken it. Now, if I was looking at a chart and it was just education level and percentage of people who've taken psychedelics, the higher up I get in the education level, the higher the percentage of people taking psychedelics. So here was something which 26 million people of the higher, the, the more educated, have been taking these for 40 years. That's not very successful repression. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. People say, <clears throat> they'll often say, well, the 60s didn't work. You know, we, we tried free love. We tried the 60s thing. It didn't work. And I look at them and I say, it didn't work. <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, every, you look around you, you look at, as you, you delineated, the women's rights, civil rights, vegetarianism and consciousness of where your food is coming from, right. respect for the earth, the first Earth Day, the whole earth catalog, uh, the this sort of convergence of of out-of-the-box thinking with technology at Stanford and around exactly. you know, Silicon Valley. The entire birth of Silicon Valley is basically a convergence of hippie culture and technology. Um, to say that it didn't work is to ignore contemporary history. Right. It's to take one's iPhone and deny it. Yeah. <laughs> you must not deny the iPhone. Um, but getting back to what I was saying earlier, you know, you, know, you, okay, you said that... Um, Psychedelics are um, disruptive to the stability of of a, of, of, a of a culture, particularly a culture built on these these kind of inequalities. Built on bullshit. Yeah, yeah, but not all culture. No, because you have the Huichole, for example, who use peyote as part of the maintenance of their culture. Right. So in Greece, what I'm, you know, my understanding is hunter gatherers in who who use these substances. They uh, contribute to the maintenance and, and they contribute to the stability of the culture because the culture is not built on bullshit. Well, yeah, ancient Greece, again, they had slaves. So I'm, that's what they I was going to get to. Like, what, how did it affect? Well, uh, I'm they, no expert on I mean, Greece. The but. problem for any culture that wants to spend time on literature, art, philosophy, and science is somebody's got to do the laundry. Yeah. And so what we've done is we have a washing machine. If we didn't have a washing machine, my guess is all over California there would be a lot more jobs at the lowest end of people doing laundry. Just as the Chinese who entered California as basically indentured railway workers, yeah. um, when they, they began to set up what we call Chinese laundry <laughs> and Chinese restaurants. These are all low skill, high work. Well, the Greeks didn't. Greeks basically, um, some of the some of the cities, the ones that we admire, like Athens, um, they had slaves because that was the way you got things done. Yeah. They didn't feel that slaves were were inferior people. They just happened to be people often captured in war, and and we forget that the word slave comes from the word Slav, right? And the the slaves came out of Russia into Europe through the Middle Ages. All the Middle Ages were full of slaves. Yeah. Um, the, the American slave experience was peculiar in that it was having people really who were not of their own culture, not of their own civilization. Mm, that's an interesting insight. Yeah. So if you think about it, you're in a Greek family and who's the nursemaid for the children? Well, she has to be somebody who's going to keep, who's going to speak their language 
and is going to be giving them the cultural values. Mm. So the slave, the Slavs would have been the barbarians at the gate, or the, you know, the well, they were people who, you know, anyone who lost in war. Yeah. See, if we go back to ancient Greece, which is a different slave, they were just people who lost. When you lost, you either got killed or be made a slave. And, yeah. and most people, given the choice, yeah, um, thought, well, I'd rather try living <laughs> and see how that works out. Let's see how it works. You can always die later. <laughs> If it doesn't work out. So, so ancient Greece, of course, had its problems. And um, the fact that they were held together for 1,500 years by this common spiritual experience um, is simply worth noting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about the use of, of psychedelics in Asia? I don't really know anything about Chinese and how it... Well, I, I started... I started pulling on my Chinese sources at one point uh, when I had a friend who, um, well, he became a friend, but he microdosed, he was microdosing in China. And since his mail was always looked at, or his email as well, uh, I would get these reports on coffee. Mm. <laughs> and I had a cup of coffee and then several days later I had another cup of coffee. And so I said to him, can you, do you have any way of tracking down the uses of these substances in China. And what we ended up with, and I ended up with another graduate student who's Chinese, and her grandfather was a physician, and her great-grandfather, and her great-great-grandfather. And so there was manuscripts. And so there are psychedelic substances known in Chinese medicine, but it never became of much interest. Hmm. That's interesting. And that may be Dose might be set in setting. I mean, take the one that's most amazing is why isn't there a long history of psychedelic use in England? See, England has a particular geography where a particular mushroom known as a fairy cap grows easily and endlessly almost everywhere. Yeah. And it's a psychedelic mushroom. But for some reason, the English never quite use them. It's interesting how, how some cultures right. access them very easily and others don't. I, I, India is another example. We've mentioned Soma, but I don't think there's a, a big tradition. of. Well, Soma was actually more to the north. And yeah. so as the civilization moved into the warmer areas, the, whatever Soma was didn't grow there. Mm. Right. Though there is a wonderful book called The Secret Drugs of Buddhism. And one of the major streams of Buddhism had certain fundamental rituals which were deeply involved with the use of psychedelic mushrooms. Mm, interesting. So that in order to progress in that particular Buddhist lineage, one had to go through those experiences. Right. And of course, yeah. there's always the rumors about Christianity, which probably are not so. Yeah. You know, uh, we mentioned uh, catechesis earlier, and, and I lived in Barcelona most of my adult life. The Catalans eat more different types of mushrooms than any other people on earth. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, partly because they have access. Right. And right, and 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 of course, mushrooms are this fascinating, um, not plant, and I mean they're a class. There's, a, yeah. you know, we almost everyone thinks of mushrooms as if they're a vegetable or a plant but they're not they're in their own world of a fungus 
and one of the other funguses that we know about, not only psilocybin is a world changer, but penicillin is a fungus. Mm, right. So there's a whole world that that kind of goes between the animal and vegetable kingdom. And, you know, when you talk to the, the wonderful mycologists, they point out that the only reason there is a plant kingdom is because of mushrooms. They break down, they break down the animal the, kingdom. The, they break down the minerals in, in soil uh -huh. with the mycelium, the little root systems right, that, right. that underlie all, you know, the forest. Yeah. So we live in a very, um, we don't have a very clear idea of how the world works. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what psychedelics, I think, have done is get us more interested in how things are connected. Right. Because I was talking to a, a, a Torsten Passi, who's an um, incredibly fine German researcher and physician, and he was talking about the uh, fact that people who've had psychedelics, and he was thinking of the very recent study in England of people with treatment-resistant depression being given a couple of strong doses of psilocybin. And what he said is people find that they are more connected to, to nature, to other people, to relationships. And I said, I don't, that, that isn't quite the way I would see it, is they are less disconnected. And as soon as you are less disconnected, imagine if you're wearing a little, you know, a shield from some uh, Marvel magazine of, of power, and you take the shield down, you don't, you're not connecting, but you are aware that you have always been connected. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the distinction. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is that, or maybe I'm projecting onto you, but that we live in a society that sort of calcifies uh it rewards isolation in and it rewards isolation particularly from nature i mean one yeah. can truly live in new york city yeah for example and not touch a living thing yeah i saw a thing the other day some some diplomat was in london and he had um breached protocol in a very serious way by touching the queen <laughs> and, and there was a photo of him he just sort of had his hand by her elbow and they right. were going down some steps and i guess he was afraid she's an old lady he didn't want her to fall and it was a big brouhaha and i thought the poor queen yeah imagine that you know it's like these virgin sacrifices you know again <laughs> she cannot be touched her whole life no one can touch the queen oh what a miserable life yeah well <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, when you said London, I was thinking London has all these exquisite little m tiny parks and gorgeous banks of flowers. And I realized what, what they're aware of is they live in a city, but they need to be in touch with nature. Right. And, you, you know, if you live in Paris, which is where I lived for a year, um, these giant parks are everywhere. And they're an opportunity. And some of them are quite wild. Some of them You're are talking very, about prostitution? Or? No, no. No, I'm talking about plant life. <laughs> no, the, you don't need to go to the parks for prostitution. <laughs> the Wallonia. That's the boulevard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's, I think, the great... Uh, the thing that's happened for, for psychedelic users, and no matter... Even if they just think they're doing concert doses. And I got this when I gave a talk at Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz, a few years ago. And there were hundreds of students, and I gave out forms saying, what have you taken, how's it been, good trips, bad trips, kind of very normal stuff, but it was yeah. data we really don't have anywhere. And one of the things I got in reading over their, their reports is basically 
I took such and such drugs originally to get high. And however, what I'm noticing is I'm less neurotic now. I have better relationships and I like nature. Mm -hmm. And after a talk, another talk near in Santa Cruz, someone came up and said, I'm going to give you a new word. I said, what is it? It's a hikadelic. And I said, what's a hikadelic? And she said, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> she said, every quarter, a number of us get together and we take about 100 micrograms and we go on a hike. Mm. Because we want to be deeply involved in nature. Yeah. So it looks like if one uses psychedelics, one ends up eventually becoming more connected to the natural world. And since once you're connected to the natural world, you want to save it. Just as you're connected to your children, you want to save them. Right. So that the ecology movement doesn't directly acknowledge psychedelics, but it's a natural evolution. Yeah. And it's a natural evolution in, in all those other cultures as well. So what do you think is happening now? You met, you referred earlier to the you know, the psychedel psychedelics, yes. That's right. <laughs> you got it. Um are are you know, we're experiencing experiencing a resurgence. Uh, I'm sure you know Rick Doblin and Maps and you know, I credit him with a lot of this you know, bringing mm -hmm. uh, um, governmental uh, approval to a lot of this research and, and finally getting some respect for this stuff. But uh, why is this happening now? Well, my speculation is the people who basically said, let's make psychedelics illegal. No, there's no evidence for it. Oh, my God, there's a new thing called MDMA that people are really enjoying there must be something wrong with that. Let's make that illegal too. Oh, there is a lot of evidence that it's beneficial. Well, yeah, but let's just make it illegal because we can and we don't like it that people are having such a good time. I mean, I say this in a, in a way that it's a satire, but the people who, there are always people who feel inherently that pleasure is not allowed. This is the Puritan streak in American right. history. Right. Well, the nice thing about such people like the rest of us, is they die. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, yeah. You know, my, my image in the 60s is why the 60s had problems, is the kid comes back from Yale, where he's just had a psychedelic trip, and he says to his father, the banker, everything you do in life sucks. Mm. And the father says, what are you talking about? He says, banking and capitalism and money. And the father says, I'm paying tuition for this? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although, wasn't Gordon Wasson a banker? Yeah. <laughs> That's an, yeah, he, he, for people who don't know who he was, he and his wife, who was Russian, I Correct. believe. Did you know them by any chance? No, they were, they were past me. Yeah, yeah, they were, because I guess it was the 50s yeah. where they went down to Mexico. They went down to Mexico. To Oaxaca. Um, and followed some advice they'd been given and they came to the home of a woman named Maria Sabina right. who was a curandera or, a, or a, a medicine plant woman and they asked to participate in a ritual and what Maria Sabrina did is she she checked with the mushrooms and which she called the little children and they said it was okay mm. even though they were gringos and they didn't know what they were doing 
and with them was someone actually who worked for the CIA. This was known at the time. The right. CIA was not evil at the time. And they then went back to the West and talked to their friend, Henry Luce, who ran Life Magazine. Life Magazine, right. So yeah. this exploded into the culture. And that's what Leary saw, right? Yeah. The article in Life Magazine. Yeah. yeah. So this, um, and although he was a banker, he became a, a very important uh, researcher on the effects of mushroom in human history. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a little unfair to call him a banker, yeah. but yeah. he was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so then, then uh, Maria Sabina's story, by the way, gets quite bad. Mm. She did not benefit from this at all, nor did her village. And at one point, the village burned her house down. Mm. Because because all these hippies because all these coming. hippies would come and have no respect. Yeah, yeah. So the the culture was was unable to take this much of a step forward at one big jump. So the Renaissance, going back to your question, the Renaissance is basically, um, and Rick Dobbin has a one brilliant insight where he says we are not the counterculture. We are the culture. Hmm. And if you're the culture, then if you want to do research, you go to the Food and Drug Administration, you fill out the forms, you um, do all the things that the system asks for. And what the system says, if you do all the things that you, we ask of you, we really can't stop you because we also have a belief system of science and of medicine and all the research you're doing is helping sick people. That's, we have a model for that. We don't have a model for what Bob Jess calls enhanced wellness. Mm. We really don't have a model for how to make your life better using things that look like pharmaceuticals. Right. And that's been where the shift is happening. So if you look at all the psychedelic renaissance, 95% of it is still inside the medical model. But if we look at use in the United States, maybe one quarter of 1% are the people taking it in research settings. And the other 99.75% are taking it for personal growth, tripping, recreation, and, uh, and a host of other uses. And then what I've found is that microdosing is a whole nother realm that was unexplored and is somewhere is both in the medical and in the enhanced wellness world mm. so that there are two huge groups of microdose users all of whom are getting weller but some start from a sick position and some start from a um, kind of a smart ass computer programmer yeah. um, in Denver or in Dublin or in Dubai I have letters from all of those um, who are finding that microdosing simply makes their life work better. Mm. Must be hard to find good acid in Dubai. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> there is a, uh, a curious democratization of illegal substances, which is called the dark web. Yeah. And curiously, and I don't know how to get on the dark web, and I don't intend to learn, yeah. um, just because I... You don't need the trouble. Well, one of the drawbacks of being a legitimate, uh, visible researcher is you have to obey all the laws. Right. So I do. Yeah. But when I get a letter from someone from a small village in India 
and I have to look it up on Google Maps to find its existence. And it's from a high school student who is asking about how to microdose. Okay? <laughs> the yeah, democratization yeah. of these substances through the dark web where one is allowed to buy illegal substances. And, and just curiously, um, I just looked at a, a, a huge study that, the, that I think that a, a, an agency does every year, like 150,000 people talked about their drug use worldwide. Almost no heroin is sold on the dark web. Hmm. But, a, but a, a realistic percentage of psychedelics are. So it's one of the places where psychedelics actually um, have democratized. Right. And so that's just a phenomenon. Do you think, I, I know some people who hang out with um, uh, big uh, industrial titans and mm -hmm. CEOs of big companies. And, sure. And I've heard through the social channels that uh, a lot of these people are into microdosing, people who live on their creativity. Well, there's the quote that, that we enjoy is from Tim Ferriss, hmm. who says, every billionaire I know in Silicon Valley has an extensive use of psychedelics. Okay, there you go. Now, so. but, that's, but he was more talking high dose. Uh. But what I, what I know is that people people who say, I want to function better, are likely to be interested in their own minds. Right. They're interested in health food and substances and, uh, you know, sh cool shoes and backpacks that, that double as waffle irons and so forth. Hybrid cars. Yeah. There also, I found when I go around doing talks about <clears throat> Sex at Dawn that there's a big overlap between yeah. the sort of high tech, high IQ crowd and people who are looking at alternative models of relationships. They're, it's the same thing. They're trying to find a better way. Oh, <laughs> I, I asked Sophia if she could just dig into our database uh -huh. for something for you. Uh -huh. <laughs> and she said, we do have a few cases of people talking about increased libido. Oh, there you uh, go. She said, but we also have some people who lost 25 pounds each. So. Um, that's and, good. And, and I, I recall that I remember one of the one of the reports said, if the improvements in my sexuality are are generalized by microdosers, you've got a hell of a product. <laughs> <laughs> and and the one that interests me, uh, this is someone who's seventy seven. Yeah. And he's recovering from a stroke, and he's made amazing progress since he started microdosing. But his wife reported that their sexual life had enormously improved. Right. So well, uh, this is for the sex at dawn crowd. Right. Yes. Right. That, that it looks like, and, and it isn't because they're, see, we tend to think like, like each organ somehow lives in a separate yeah. room. Right. And there's little doors. Right. The fact is when people microdose, their body functions more effectively. Well, and that includes yeah. their sexual organs. Right. And as you were saying earlier, uh, the diminishment of the disconnect yeah. can only have beneficial effects on sexuality and relationships in general. You know, a lot of people have said, you know, um, I'm taking this and my girlfriend says, this is great <laughs> for yeah. you, right. for us. 
Well, and you know, so sure, you when you function better, your relationships improve because right. you're not running, you're not being run as much by fear or anger. Right, right. You're not lying to yourself. You're not lying to other people. Um, you know, erectile dysfunction, if it's not purely physiological, it's, right. it's psychological. And so anything you can do to face your demons and relax a little bit can only be beneficial. And, and with microdosing, I get almost no reports of, you know, therapeutic breakthroughs. Yeah. I do have reports of people and now therapists who recommend to their clients because it makes the work go better. But what I do get is I'm not as upset. Hmm. And a lot of people have said, I still get angry, but I, I notice it takes a few minutes, not a few days. Hmm. So that a relationship yeah. improves when you are not caught by the negative emotions that are part of every relationship, but that they pass more quickly. And that, yeah. to me, is, again, it's like improved digestion. Yeah. You know, that, that if you have poor digestion, it takes forever to get through the system, and that's not as good for the system. Right. And so what what the beauty of microdosing is it doesn't bother anybody um you know as you if you walked on the beach after we talked and i said to you 10 percent of these people are microdosing you would not have any possible way of knowing right now if i said 10 percent of them have taken 300 mics of lsd yeah. you would know those would be the ones who yeah. would be so tripped out that they would stand out yeah so we're dealing with a substance that's gentle and, and incredibly general in its effects. Now, what you know, we've been, I, I can imagine people listening to this, particularly people who are naive mm. to these substances, maybe parents worried about their kids. And you guys haven't said anything negative. Okay. What's the downside? The downside is if your only symptom is anxiety, microdosing will make you more aware of your anxiety. I mean, literally, we've been, we're, we're not so unsophisticated as to think we need to get some negatives in here or nobody's going to believe us. Now, is that the same as it will make you more anxious? Well, see, we don't know. Huh. See, the, 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 it's a, But people basically say, it's not comfortable, I don't like this. Yeah. I feel either more anxious or more aware of my anxiety or... It's an interesting distinction, right. though, isn't it? And there's another group. We've had five of them in our 1700. They all dropped out. And they had one thing in common, which is they saw tracers. Now, mm. tracers for your psychedelic audience is what you get when you have a higher dose and you move your hand through the air and you see shadows of the hand behind. And that's why light shows. That's why people, mm. you know, if you've ever wondered why is there a light show at a concert, mm. it's because the people who are tripping are getting a lot more out of the lights than the lights. You're played ping pong while you're tripping. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> it's like the ball has this long tail. Exactly. You know, it's really amazing. But if you're taking a microdose and you're going to work in in you know a general electric factory in, in Hoboken, tracers aren't a great thing to have happen. So yeah. these five people all dropped out <clears> tracers. <throat> and so we found out what the problem was. All these five people are colorblind. Really? And this is the kind of data that, that just makes an audience of geeks salivate. Yeah. Because that is so cool. And we have the faintest idea why. And we're talking to people in the visual world. Huh. Um, so it just, so people who are colorblind definitely should not microdose. People who have high well, anxiety. Or, or they should just expect that they'll have visual Yeah. And we've anomalies. also, people with chronic pain 
basically it looks like people will feel better but if they're saying my pain is a seven and then I've microdosed my pain is still a seven but I don't feel so bad they're a little disconnected so it, so it doesn't seem to affect chronic conditions like rheumatoid arthritis uh -huh. um, but it but we're doing some sub studies we're just starting because we have people telling us it helped and the one that is very exciting for me is um, traumatic brain injury or concussions right um, and this happened at maps I was at maps and there was a guy who in a session said you know, any information about whether psychedelics would help traumatic brain injury and the answer from a very respectable researcher not like me said well we don't have any evidence and a double blind blah, blah, blah. and so he asked it again in some other setting and so I said to him why keep asking this question he said well he didn't know who I was he said I have traumatic brain injury from a car accident and since I've been microdosing the screaming headaches have gone and I went in my little head mm. woo, 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 woo. Mm. and before I left maps two other people had told me pretty much the same story that they had traumatic brain injury and that microdosing had helped so I'm now looking for people so to speak who have traumatic brain injury and are, want to microdose and let us know what happens. Do we know if there's any change in cerebral blood flow? We didn't know anything. Huh. <laughs> I mean, we've never done any laboratory research. There will be a study in England um, through the Beckley Foundation, and they'll be looking at blood flow, and they'll be looking at a lot of those conventional things. My own guess is that not much is going to show. I mean, my hope is that it'll look like a, a small version of a higher dose mm. when you look at the brain imagery, but it may not. Yeah. What, what I'm looking at, however, if people with traumatic brain injury stop having screaming headaches, I'm this kind of you know, simple-minded pragmatist. That's good enough for me. Yeah. Well, there, I, I remember reading something or, or hearing something about... Um, uh, uh, what's the, the headache people get that blinds them? Oh, clusters. Uh, cluster headaches, yeah. or there's another word for it as well. Um, well, they're also called suicide headaches. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they want you no, they're the worst. Yourself. They're the worst pain that human beings can experience. And and psychedelics. Higher doses, almost uh, always, higher doses of psychedelics are one of the few things that almost everything else can alleviate the pain, maybe. Opioids don't cut the pain at all, mm. so none of the painkillers work. It's a different pathway. Mm. But psychedelics stop the headache. They don't dim it. They don't dull it. They stop it. And I've seen people, I've seen one person who had what's called a, an ice pick headache. That's yeah. a cluster headache that's really short. Yeah. It's about a minute. And I watched this person take a little bit of LSD under her tongue, and within, and within 15 seconds of this minute, it went away. That's incredible. So there is research, hopefully, yeah. the research project is starting at Yale, and it's, uh, it's to demonstrate what we already know, like most research, um, that if you are a cluster headache sufferer, a relatively high dose of a psychedelic taken either before or during will alleviate the headache. And Literally, there's a, there's a website, this is really important to anyone with clusters, called Cluster Busters. And they are devoted to helping people with clusters 
understand how to use psychedelics in the most effective way. And they're just this wonderful support group of people who are all cluster sufferers. That's fantastic. You know, getting back to the, the visual thing and the, the colorblindness, I have a, one of my closest friends is colorblind. And when I was in grad school, we took psilocybin mushrooms together. It was the first time he'd ever done it. Sure. And he, he, his, his particular type of colorblindness, he could only see yellow. He, mm-hmm. he could make out shades of yellow, and that was pretty much it. And um, this time we took mushrooms. He was just, he was just looking around. <laughs> I said, what are you looking at, man? He said, Chris, I see red. I see blue. I was like, really? Like, that book right there, what is that? That's red. I was like, well, what does red look like to you? He said, I don't know, but I see it. I've never seen it before, but now I see it. I know what you mean by, by red, you know? And, uh, yeah, it, it, at the time, I was sort of casting about for a dissertation topic, so I started looking into colorblindness. What is oh, colorblindness? Oh, okay. How does the visual cortex work? And, uh-huh. you know, what the rods and the cones and all this stuff. There's a great book by Oliver Sacks called The Island of the Colorblind. Um, there's an island in the Pacific where... Oh, where the genetics are the such. The genetic right. thing, yeah. Um, uh, and so I sort of, I, I thought briefly, uh, what an interesting thing it would be if you could demonstrate that the use of, of some psychedelics would have an effect on colorblindness because you've got, I think it's wow. 8 to 10% of white men wow. are colorblind. And a lot of them are in positions of great power. Right. And if you could sort of get that out into the culture, suddenly laws would be relaxed, allowing that research, I'm sure. But I ended up doing sex and prehistory instead. You know. <laughs> and it turns out an even larger percentage of the people had sexual organs. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there is another one of those kind of studies where there is a very, very strong and well-documented documentary evidence that 20 to 25 micrograms increases the success of your golf game. There you go. And this is important because who plays golf and what i know because i have worked for a little bit with with a golfers group people will do unbelievable things (laughs) in order to improve their golf game exactly and so if we could get people at country clubs around the united states various trump organizations exactly exactly imagine trump golf clubs yeah (laughs) come with a little packet on the side exactly exactly (laughs) Uh, I, I, we've we've spoken for an hour. I don't want to take up your whole day here, but but uh, you know I'm very interested. You, your perspective on this is you know more. Uh, I was, I'm thinking in Spanish, amplio, like it, it's mm-hmm. broader than than mine is. But I can remember. You know, I was into. I, I first tripped Halloween night, 1980. <laughs> it was my first year of college. Beautiful. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> And it was such a transformative mm-hmm. evening for me because my feeling was as soon as the effects took hold, it was f- deeply familiar. Right. It was right. like, I've been here, and this is, this is real. That other stuff? There's a term called remember, but put the re-member. It's putting yourself back together, and the yeah. feeling, and it's really quite extraordinary because the feeling is... Oh, I'm home. That's exactly what I felt that night. Right. And many times after that. Yeah. And, you know, I've had very challenging nights. I, I, I've told a story on this podcast before. I was in Guatemala on top of a temple 
tripping <laughs> on LSD. The, the, the sun was going down, the moon was rising, and I got stung by a scorpion. <laughs> and I was told I was going to die. And it was this... You know, Makes for a bad night. Well, but it wasn't. Okay. It made, it made for a, a, a very... Memorable night. <laughs> See, actually, we're trying now, as I play with words, is we're trying to get rid of bad trip. We're well, trying to replace that, it with that's challenging the point trip. I was getting to. I've yeah. had experiences that were, that were challenging, yeah. But I don't, I've never had a bad trip. I've never regretted the wow, experience. Exactly. And let me actually, being kind of this pseudoscientist here, there is some research that Hopkins did. It was a questionnaire sent out to the world saying, tell us about your worst trip. They also did another study, tell us about your best trip. And they were saying, just tell us about your worst trip. But one of the questions was, how important or valuable or positive in the long run was it? And they got a very high percentage of people that said it was very beneficial, maybe like 80, 85%. Yeah. Now, they also did the good trip study and the same question, about the same percentage. So what people really are saying is, a challenging trip put me through places I never would go on my own, and as I reflect back on it, it allowed things to happen in my life that couldn't have happened any other way. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah. Would, you, would you go back to Guatemala carrying a scorpion? No. No, I'd probably wear <laughs> shoes <laughs> instead of sandals. Yeah, I mean, if if I were asked that question, I the same experience would probably be the worst and the best trip. Yeah, I'd tell the same story twice. Yeah, you know. Um, but but what do you say to people who say, "Oh, I have a friend. He took too much acid and burned his brain out, and you know, he, he went I, schizophrenic." And well, if I'm feeling kind of gentle, I would say, you know, that's really terrible, and and we really are trying to make these things legal and that it turns out that, that set and setting is really important. Yeah. If I'm being a little more flippant, I'd say, I have a friend who has a car, and he crashed it. Yeah. And I don't think we should stop having cars. Right. I think we should, however, do everything we can so that when people either drive or trip, and we're talking really the same kind of verb, that they should do it as safely and effectively as possible. Right. Um, just as if someone runs up to you on the street with a scalpel, that's terrifying, but if, you're in a hospital and you've been told that you're going to be cut, it's something you're looking forward to because it's going to benefit you. And so the, there's a rule of thumb uh, which is everything that can be used well, someone is going to figure out how to misuse it. Right. Um, when I was in the design, the design division of mechanical engineering at Stanford where for mysterious reasons I was teaching, the, I heard you mention that to Kyle. <laughs> a number You've of, never taken an engineering class, but you're teaching hey, engineering. Yeah, well, it wasn't my problem. <laughs> Great, I'm going to teach Russian. Why not? <laughs> the other faculty who were genuine uh, would often be testifying as expert witnesses about equipment because somebody would have injured themselves on a piece of equipment, and either they would represent the person or the company. And what we realized is that that the word idiot proof is the wrong word. It's kind of genius proof and there isn't any, which is somebody can find a way to hurt themselves on absolutely everything. Hmm. So yeah. given that, 
you do the best you can. And when people say, um, you know, my friend is still in the mental hospital and he um, took it when he was 16. And I'm thinking now of a real story of someone told me is he and his friend took it. And they were then um, walking out of the park and they met police and his friend panicked. And he said it took six policemen to hold him down. Mm -hmm. And he then was hospitalized, not for injuries, but for the, and, and given a huge injection of something to bring, to dull him, and he never recovered. This was the story. Um, I would find that a lot of people who were held down by six policemen and feel that they're being, you know, tortured by aliens or torn apart by animals would have a trauma, quite irrespective of having medication. Right. So the answer for psychedelics and automobiles and taking it kind of the way other way around this is the gun lobby says you know guns are safe it's just if you put them in your mouth and shoot them that's dumb psychedelics are a lot safer than amazing things I mean my my it's very very hard to harm yourself physically by taking enough of a psychedelic I think it's kind of impossible, isn't it's, it? Well, I mean, No one's ever died from an well, the one, The one story that I used to think was true until I found out the, the secret to it is the, there was a study done where they gave a massive amount of LSD to an elephant and it died. I remember reading that. Yeah. And it was a true story. And it was a guy in Oklahoma who did it. Now, it seems to me a great waste of LSD and certainly <laughs> a great say. waste of an elephant. Yeah. And for years I would say it, we learned that if you give enough LSD to kill an elephant, you can kill an elephant. Ha, ha, ha. I learned by listening to the man's son, who had done a biography of his father, that because they were afraid that the elephant would get upset, they gave him massive doses of tranquilizers. And his respiration dropped, just as it would, with a high amount of tranquilizers and so he literally stopped breathing because of the tranquilizers it had nothing to do with psychedelics at all yeah. so now we know that if you give enough LSD to kill an elephant you can't yeah they won't even kill an elephant that reminds me of the the whole broken chromosome story oh, yes, right that right. was published everywhere front page everywhere that LSD will mess up your chromosomes which of course is the most insidious kind of propaganda Absolutely. because then everyone's worried their children are going to be Right. harmed Mutants, by it right. and it was total bullshit it was they they found that if you put the same amount of distilled water right as the lsd the yeah. chromosomes broke the same way yeah and so, aspirin also does it yeah yeah it's ridiculous <laughs> it was in a petri dish it, it exactly was, uh, hey thank you so much for making time for me well this was wonderful yeah. to see you and i must tell your audience that you're one of my heroes uh, me Yes, and that your book has been just an amazing force in my life of really? kind of making me feel sane. Oh, thank you. And I, I am just that. delighted to meet you and be on the show. Oh, thank <laughs> you, man. I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> Absolutely. I thought you were just doing Kyle a favor. No, uh, not the slightest. I'm really excited that I got to be with you. <laughs> thank you.
I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me, I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, 
We'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.